0: Welcome to the Business of Beverages, drinks industry insights with makers, marketeers and mischief. In this episode you'll learn how BrewDog's faux punk veneer and constant shock tactics distract from craft beer's very own great rock and roll swindle. Hello and welcome to the Business of Beverages. I'm your host Will Keating and I'm joined by Mr. Podrick Fox. Hello, Foxy. Hello, Will. How are you getting on? I'm getting on great. <laughs> I'm loving the Irish summer, sort of.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I have been delving into some indoor pints. Mm-hmm. I, I won't lie to you, Will, I am feeling a little bit fragile today. I was at a wedding in Cork yesterday where I was able to partake in indoor pints as a wedding guest, which was quite nice. Wow. And obviously,
0: because I was in Cork, I had to do, you know, the obligatory pint of Murphy's. Well, I, I love the way you said pint of Murphy's as in singular. Did you manage more than one? I had one because,
1: you know, i Guinness man, true and true. So I had my couple of pints of Guinness and then, you know, just had to have my, my pint of Murphy's while I was there. Did you get the passport stamped as well? <laughs> you know, some people do say Cork is the real capital. They're wrong, but, you know, they do say it. <laughs> the three main stouts. Do you reckon you could tell them apart in a blind taste test?
0: Yes, 100% confident I can tell Murphy's. I'm very confident I can tell Guinness and Beamish apart. But I'll never say never for those two. But if, if I got the Murphys wrong, you know, I'd, I'd kick myself on the backside. Oh, well, Maybe for our next episode, we should bring a couple
1: of cans and do a little blind taste test. Uh, okay, I'm on for that.
0: Mostly because I just want to drink cans while we record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I too have been out and about. I went to BrewDogs HQ, Dublin for some pints. It to be outdoors. It was in a torrential downpour, actually, as it happens. But whilst I was there, I was ordering, and one of the bartenders took a particular notice to me, and he was hanging around. He came around over a couple of times, and eventually he came over to me and said, you wouldn't have to be Will Keating, would you? Not the Will Keating of the Business of Beverages podcast, surely. Well, I said, well, yes, I am. Uh, how did you recognize me, or how do you know me? And he says, oh, no, I just i heard your voice i was listening to your voice and, and i recognized you from your podcast and my my heart swelled i had this little moment of joy and i thought this is amazing i'm i'm actually famous my podcast is getting through to the target audience and i said how did you hear about the podcast he said oh fox is my brother-in-law he made me listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> no to be fair killian listens to them by choice oh that's not what he said Well, actually, it is uh, very apt and appropriate, though, because um, BrewDog are the subject of our special episode today. So it is a deep dive into the why's, wherefores um, of BrewDog and, in particular, their behavior towards their equity for punks. And I think that uh, Dave Infante, our uh, journalistic contributor uh, who's based in the US, is an outstanding guide to really intricacies of BrewDog and getting past their very self-serving controversy machine and actually looking underneath the bonnet at what happens uh, to the money that they raise from their army of punks. And it is not an insignificant amount of money. So it might be
1: a small amount to each individual, but you add up all those individuals as a collective and that's not a small
0: uh, marginal money at all. We try to be as balanced as possible in this because, you know, we don't think that the guys in BrewDog walk around with uh, cloven hooves, but by the same token, we need a little bit of rigor and uh, trying to understand exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I think Dave provides that in, in Spain. Maybe for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with BrewDog, they're a Scottish craft beer company who've been in existence for about 15 years or so now. but. You know, if we want to talk about controversy, these guys are the kings of controversy. So, to give some uh, highlights, we could talk about how there's been a, a letter published in the social media recently, which detailed, you know, hundreds of their former employees detailing a, an explicit culture of toxic you know, work environments and bullying from the from the top down. Uh, we've had a controversy here in Europe where promotion for the company that advertised uh, solid gold cans to uh, consumers, actually turned out that those cans, once they were inspected by the the winners of the competition, were actually mostly made of brass. We had... A seltzer advertisement for their clean and pressed seltzer brand, which was designed to get banned by the Advertising Standards Authority in the UK, subsequently got banned. And then true to the Dog playbook, they tried to take advantage of this controversy and they got called out pretty uh, significantly on, on social media and had to withdraw their complaint about their ad being withdrawn. We had a report in the UK papers recently saying that a quarter of all of BrewDog's shares, which I'm sure we'll get into in in time because their their shareholdings are not straightforward, but a quarter of their shares were held in offshore tax havens. And then we also had, even when the company tried to do the right thing, uh, we've had stories like their massive reforestation program, which is meant to offset a lot of their carbon uh, footprint, has been mired in controversy because it's been claimed that they've been evicting gamekeepers, farmers, and, and other estate workers from the estate that they bought, which they intend to reforest. And that might seem like a lot of controversy, but that's the last four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> There's over a decade of this. Like This is just of the Iceberg stuff.
2: It really was remarkable, man. I mean, that was a great litany, and you're right. That was just, I mean, you know, the first. It was like Q1 of 2021, right? And 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 they've been around for, like you said, about 15 years. This this dates. This goes back. Uh, this goes back over a decade.
0: So our our question to you is relatively simple. What the fuck is going on with BrewDog? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: man, where to start? Right, like, so I should say that you know I first got interested in BrewDog about 6 months ago i I'd, I'd followed the company's rise you know for for years and sort of kept an eye on them a little bit ever since they entered the us market in 2017 i want to say i was when, when they when they came to the us and uh, as as you as you mentioned they've always been kind of mired by controversy and it's very clear that to some extent they court the controversy right they're they're very savvy marketers james watt and martin dickey who are the two co-founders They understand pretty instinctually, from what I can tell, what makes a story, what churns like sort of what churns the mainstream press into action and and will draw attention to the brand. And they're not afraid of line stepping. Right. Like they uh, I I had written um, a piece about uh, their controversial behavior as it pertained to women and the LGBTQ plus community as far back as 2011 they had put out a beer called trashy blonde ale which to be fair at the time a lot of breweries were still kind of leaning into that lowest common denominator like uh, yeah. uh like sexy blonde ale bullshit like right so they weren't the only ones certainly but you know they had really leaned into that they did the hello my name is lad vladimir beer in 2014 where it was, you know, kind of like mocking uh, Putin, but also kind of like mocking the stereotype of gay men, you know, and and there was like some homoeroticism that was sort of venturing into homophobia with it. So like they did these as marketing campaigns, right? This wasn't like a slip of the tongue type of thing where it's like, oops, I said something I shouldn't have and I apologize for it. These were were thought through marketing campaigns. So, you know, what the fuck is going on with BrewDog, I think – To some extent, what's going on with BrewDog now is what's always been going on with BrewDog is that controversy swirls around them and much of it is of their own creation. Now, I think more recently, uh, you know, there's a there's a phrase in the U.S. like, you know, about like riding the lightning. Right. Like and you can only do that for so long before you get burned.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about that, you know, talking about riding that lightning. Like Stone were probably one of the best examples of that in the US for a long, long time. And they really got caught out when they opened in Berlin. And then Brewdog almost stepped in as the white knight to, you know, take the brewery, turn it into Brewdog Berlin, um, put a huge positive PR spin on this. And I meanwhile, in the background, I'm kind of thinking, well, there's a huge thing that we're not talking about here called Brexit. This is surely BrewDog being a very savvy company, setting up a European brewery in the EU, which can now supply its 70 or 80 odd bars in continental Europe that they probably won't be able to do without serious tax issues from the UK anymore.
2: Yeah, I mean, so there are a couple of things at play there. One, like the comparison of the stone is really interesting, because I don't think it's unfair to say that stone has sort of gone through a bit of an identity crisis as it's arrogant bastard gatekeeping shtick has sort of not aged well with the times. Like it, it seems like a brand that's kind of in search of a drinker. I'll say here in the U S they recently released a hard seltzer, which would have been anathema to anyone who knew the stone brand a decade ago. Right? Like that's, it, it, it's unfathomable now where it pertains to brew I mean, you can see some parallels there maybe, and we'll see what happens with brew you know, when BrewDog acquired their Berlin Brewery, you are right. You know, very savvy, I think, with regards to Brexit, and you know they also put that on their books. If I am not mistaken, there was like a fourteen million dollar. Uh, I think they mixed that in with like operating profit in a way that made their twenty nineteen numbers look really good. One of the things that 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 I've found really interesting is I've reported on the on the company and I've, I've dug into their financials. Is that there is a duality between the public face that BrewDog presents to rank-and-file drinkers as these swashbuckling, common man, uh, anti-corporate... Punks. Punks, sure, for lack of a better term, you know, drinking buddies, whatever. And the sophisticated corporate strategy and, you know, financial maneuvers that they do to keep the business sort of growing at the rate that they need it to. And I think that's real, like, just as a, from a reporter's perspective, that tension between those two identities is really interesting to me.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I, I think their whole philosophy was built around this attempt to, to live a, a, a punk lifestyle. And what we mean by punk, just because I know we have a, a very international audience. You know, I, I, sorry, I tried to define it earlier on today, and I looked it up, and the Urban Dictionary gives, it, gives the best definition. Uh, punk is not about a certain hair color, style, or music. Punk is about liking what you like, being yourself, saying what you think, and fuck all the rest, rather than any other interpretation of punk. That's what I think Dog tried to communicate in, in what they were doing, and they really did manage to break out of the morass of craft beer, Uh, brewers who are bubbling up in the uk in around the uh, mid-naughties and they managed to really differentiate themselves based on their positioning and based on that punk branding that they created and this kind of never-ending cycle of of controversy but i i think that what is most interesting is that that has come from a place that perhaps was genuine at the start it's it's hard to tell at this remove but to a point now where they are behaving like any other multi- Billion dollar corporate conglomerate, and that's what they are. So I, I think that the financial affairs are, and the financial dealing is is nearly more interesting to me than than the, the the marketing, the controversy that surrounds that. Is that something that you've been able to dig into in a, in a bit of detail and look at how they structure themselves and and you know how they behave in terms of how they raise their equity and how they actually uh, report their their financial affairs.
2: Yeah. So just one quick addendum to like the definition of punk here. I think it's important in Brewdog's case to pay mind to the fact that more so than just saying, you know, fuck everyone else. We like what we like, which certainly is part of their veneer. They've also explicitly tied that to anti-establishmentarian, anti-corporate posture, right? And that's their choice. Like that's how they chose to frame themselves to consumers is – you know, fuck macro (laughs) brewers. We, we do a better, like we, we have an inherent goodness to us because we are not them. One of their like things that they like to repeat is their anti-business business business model. You know, like that's like one of their little quips, (laughs) right? Like, um, Uh, that's a direct quote. That's right. Quote anti-business business model End quote, like that's how they frame it or at least they have in the past. I don't know if they've abandoned that slogan at this point, but you know they that's their choice to frame themselves that way and i don't think it's up for debate that they're clever and sophisticated marketers and and that i would i would argue i would take their side on that i mean i think the, their storytelling and self-mythologizing capabilities are without parallel in the industry but the question is if you're marketing yourself that way explicitly and asking for money transactionally around that type of language, around that image of anti-corporatism, is it fair? Is it appropriate? Is it hypocritical to conduct yourself with you know, the behavior that you supposedly stand in opposition to?
1: So if you were to take a Venn diagram with punk on one circle and equity and money on the other circle, in the middle, you create this lovely shaded area called equity for punks. And I'm sitting here on this podcast as an equity punk who, uh, for anybody who's not aware of how Brudog do this, is like every... Year, well, originally when they did it, I think it was like 2010 might have been the first time that they did it, uh, Equity for Punks. It, it was a big thing, you know, buying into the company, you, you had to buy a minimum of four shares. So I, th- I think it was £200 got you four shares in the company. I think what they've done a really good job on Punks is they made Punks attractive to people in suits that it made you feel like you were rebelling against your, your job a little bit. So I was in, uh, working for one of these macro breweries that they railed against, wearing a suit and tie to work every day. I enjoyed craft beers. I thought 5am Saint was one of the best beers I'd ever tasted. I bought in in equity for punks two which was 2011 i happened to have a spare 200 pounds bought my four shares i was like you know great i'm now in a cool forum online with other like-minded individuals whatever else i got discounts in in the bars anytime i was in the uk Uh, i think i got a pint on my birthday for the first year or two then equity for punks three comes along i was like oh this seems to have been watered down a little and and I, i used the word investment loosely for me it wasn't an investment it was like being a member of a fan club Equity for Punks 3 was being pitched a little bit more as an investment with benefits. And we've just finished, maybe a year ago, Equity for Punks 5, or is it even Equity for Punks 6? And when you read the perspectives, it is so different from what it was back in 2010, 2011. But yet, like, once again, it's it's oversubscribed. It's got like loads and loads of people willing to sign up, give money to shares, and they're pitching this as an investment to people. And one thing the BrewDog have done really well is stay true to newcomers to craft beer so punk ipa is a brilliant gateway beer to somebody coming into craft beer for the first time 80 percent of what they sell is punk ipa it's new people into the market is what they get this is who they're pitching for you've done a brilliant job in, in the VinePair article of pulling out some of the the financials behind the scenes that we're not just a giant fan club funding this there's there's way more money coming into this company and this company is spending way more money elsewhere as well
2: by my count they've done 11 distinct efp rounds across all of the Brewdog and its related subsidiaries in the US and Australia uh, over 11 years. And they're well north of 100 million US dollars uh, raised in that time cumulatively. So, like, that is not an insignificant amount of money, no matter what company you are, right? Like, anyone, any company would love to have the ability to pass the hat amongst its customers and get them to to trade their cash for illiquid shares in a company that may or may not ever go public, right? Like that's remarkable. And I think, you know, one of the things I do have, admir- you know, I just want to say that I do have admiration for BrewDog being able to do this. They're very good at it. And I try to give them credit where due. It's pretty impressive, right? Like that's not, that's not an attractive deal on its face. Like, Give us two hundred pounds in exchange for a free beer on your birthday, maybe, right? Like, but but you but you took it because it aligned with your lifestyle, and I don't think you're you don't seem to be a rube, Foxy. It's not like you're an idiot. <laughs> 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 to, to
0: be to be fair, Dave, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we have to give credit where credit is due. Brewdog have done a number of really groundbreaking things, and one of the most groundbreaking, I think, is equity for punks. Is it groundbreaking in a good way or a bad way? I'm not quite so sure, because I think it's probably worth explaining to people. So Foxy mentioned some of the benefits, but the restrictions, that, that idea that you're selling B-category shares to people. Can you explain to a, an idiot or somebody like myself, who's very close to being an idiot, <laughs> what, what is a B-category share? Why did you describe them as illiquid?
2: Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's get into it here. So the Equity for Punks program, it's crowdfunding, but it's crowdfunding equity. And so that's an important distinction, right? Everyone's familiar with Kickstarter and Indiegogo and GoFundMe and things, you know, platforms like that. Those are crowdfunding rewards platforms. So you give money and they give you some form of either tangible or intangible reward. That can be anything from a free, you know, from a t-shirt for the band that you want that's raising money to go on tour. What BrewDog does is different. What BrewDog does is crowdfunding equity. So they are saying, we're going to sell equity, shares in our company, in exchange for cash, capital that that rank-and-file drinkers will give, give to them. And that equity is going to be yours to hold on to. And now you own a piece of the company. So, you know, at the surface level, it's a really compelling pitch, right? Own a piece of a brewery. Sounds cool. I love it. Like I like beer. And now I can tell all my friends that I'm a part owner of BrewDog. Like very cool. You know, Sam Adams, uh, when they were coming up in the, in the 90s and they were going public, um, they ran a promotion where you could earn shares in Sam Adams um, by mailing in proof of purchase from your six packs. You know, so like this is not totally without precedent, but the magnitude and the scale at which BrewDog does it makes everything else pale in comparison. So they sell equity shares; they are common B shares. Um, so there's common A, which is what the like insiders of the company, so Watt and Dickey and other early on shareholders. Uh, they had a couple investors. Those insiders will hold common A shares. Okay. Then they created a new class of share called Common B um, when they started doing equity for punks. Those are technically voting shares, um, but they don't come with any other privileges attached to them. They're common, uh, as the name suggests. And what I mean by a liquid is BrewDog is a privately he- or it's a semi-privately held company, I guess would be a- the way to say it. They don't trade on any exchange. They like Their shares are not for sale anywhere except from the company. And so there's no market that you can make with interested buyers to trade your shares. Should you find yourself on the wrong side of a of a you know a gambling debt or a medical emergency that you need to pony up some cash for or whatever, you have two hundred pounds worth of Brewdog shares. You want two hundred pounds worth of cash, but there's not an easy mechanism by which to convert one to the other. Now, Foxy, if he if he really needed to, he could go on Reddit or go on the Equity for Punks forum or engage a third-party broker who specializes in, in in equity for punk shares, which a few of them exist, and see if he could find someone interested in buying those shares and effectively cashing him out. But because there's no market, that's not really an attractive deal when you could just buy them from the company instead. So Foxy would probably have to offer a discount on them because there's no market to determine what they're actually worth. Foxy is going to have to take whatever money he can get for them. You know, I'm not a financial whiz, but even I understand the basics of, you know, the stock market, like that's an illiquid asset that you can't really do much with unless the company goes public at, or gets acquired at some you know future date and then you can cash out. But in the meantime, if you need that money for some reason, life happens, whatever, something comes up, you're kind of on your own.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I bought in at the, the bare minimum because it was a fun thing to do at the time. Like you said, it suited my lifestyle. I was, you know, young, single, um, into beer. This was kind of something kind of fun to do. And in fairness, I was quite lucky coming in at that point because you know you said that you can only sell the shares to you know somebody else within the company do or find something on Reddit. Bar one day a couple of years ago when Brewdog did a share sale day. So um, for anybody who doesn't know, they got, I think, maybe $100 million private equity investment from TSG, and my four shares became 100 shares. So everybody's shares who bought in in EFP 1, 2, and 3, I think each individual share quadrupled, and also there was a bit of value added to that. So they had a share uh, selling day with the caveat you could only sell 15% of your shares. So I could sell 30 but somebody else who had bought way more could sell way more and make a lot more money back off it. So, you know, hands up, I, I have made back my initial investment with, with a little bit extra for a couple of extra pints in the bar afterwards. But that was like a one-off day. They postponed the next trading day that they had planned um, prior to COVID. And like you said, will they go for an IPO? Or will they not? You know, you, anybody who bought in seeing the value of those shares at the time, I think they went up to maybe £12, give or take. That might not happen again.
2: Yeah. So there's a couple of things that I want to tease out here because you're talking about two separate but important uh, components of the operation. So one, BrewDog as a as sort of a way to facilitate some liquidity for their growing Equity for Punks community in, I think, t- either 2014 or 2016, they instituted what they called the annual trading day. And so they engaged a platform called Asset Match. Um, I think there are several that are like this, but effectively it's a, it's a brokerage platform. And they, they marked it as an official company-sanctioned day for Equity for Punk's shareholders and people who wanted to buy more equity in the company to make a market and trade with one another. So they did that on a semi-annual basis. I think there have been three or four total since then, um, the last one was in January, 2019. Um, so they, they, they facilitated that type of peer to peer trading, um, once a year, at least tried to for a little while. Um, now what's important to keep in mind is that because this was a one day event and it was, you know, not an ongoing like open market trade opportunity, um, the volume was such that like it doesn't necessarily show like what the shares are worth necessarily, you know, like it's not, it's not a full like healthy market where it's going to be efficient and the share price is actually going to settle out. So I do want to caveat the piece of information that I'm about to say with that grain of salt. But in 2019, the most recent January, 2019, the most recent trading day that BrewDog held the share price settled out at about 15 pounds per share. So they're currently selling them for 25.15 pounds per share. Is that 25 and 15 pence? I don't know. You guys tell me. Yeah. Pounds. Yeah. Pounds per, per share. And you have to buy two. So, but you know, let's just, let's just go for the one 25 uh, pounds and 15 pence per share. And in 2019, the last time they traded on a semi open market, again, not totally open. They, the price settled out at 10 pounds, more than 10 pounds less than that. Right. So if you're thinking about, you know, the distinction between Foxy, you buying in equity for punks two, or someone who's in at of one or three or four, um, earlier on, yeah, you're in better shape, right? Like you bought in at a, at a lower level. Um, when the company was younger, they had to, uh, give you more equity in order to, you know, we'll deal with the private equity investment in a second, but in order to bring TSG on, they had to quadruple your shares. Um, you're you made your money back, and that's not that's great. And like I think for a lot of early investors in BrewDog, the situation is not dire. Um, for later investors in BrewDog, such as the one that they've taken almost thirty million pounds from in the UK alone this past year, um, the situation is not nearly as rosy. And we don't know what those shares are worth because they're not openly traded, and we won't know until such time as they become openly traded right but it's hard to imagine uh it's hard to imagine how those investors are going to make their money back at least in the short term on this business
0: before we lose everybody to you know spreadsheets and you know before they go (laughs) run into their broker and trying to look up all these different categories of shares like the situation is relatively simple in so far as that as you describe it it's a semi-private company they did their equity for punks, their crowdfunding platform over a series of rounds. The earlier you bought in, the better; uh, the more equity you got, essentially, and and the higher your nominal return is. the The issue, really fundamentally, is that that return is pretty nominal unless you have traded on one of those asset matching days that that you described. But the 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 trick for me is is that so whilst the uh, returns that people have been making on equity for punks, the investment they made in equity for punks one, two, and 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 the earlier uh, ones are being touted to sell the later equity for punks, equity for punks six, equity for punks tomorrow, and the returns that are being projected for those investments are based on the returns that people got all the way back in twenty ten or twenty eleven, and, and that's simply unrealistic. I would I would imagine.
2: Yeah. You're absolutely right. So there's something, you know, I, I think this is this is like where I really have more of a problem with it or it doesn't pass the smell test to me is that so in 2017, and this is a good way to start talking about the private equity elephant in the room, as I described it, because that's an important component to any potential shareholders evaluation of the company. In 2017, TSG Consumer Partners, which is one of the, t- the biggest private consumer packaged goods, private equity companies in the world um took a 213 million pound uh uh made a 213 million pound investment in brewdog in exchange for about 22% of the company so at the time uh watt and Dickey touted that investment as uh an indication if you do out the math uh as an indication that the company was worth over a billion pounds right so this is their unicorn valuation uh this is their rocket ship moment um and Watt at the time in a statement said um, it was a validation of the democratized uh, financing model um, that they that you know the Equity for Punks program and said quote our Equity for Punks are now part of an independent business that has attracted an awesome partner who will help grow their investment even further close quote so at in 2017 when this deal is done he's explicitly positioning the returns that those early punks are getting as a result of TSG's buy-in as a indicator that future investments are going to grow more. So, you know, who will help grow their investment even further? I mean, you know, I'm not a lawyer and certainly not a lawyer in the UK. So I'm sure, um, you know, going back to that conversation about the the firm's sophistication, I'm sure they ran that through the lawyers to make sure that it was kosher for him to say that. But to a lay person, what does that sound like? Hey, we made these people money. Hey, you're going to make money. That's what it sounds like to me. And that's bullshit because it's not actually what's happening. And there's a couple reasons why. When TSG bought in for 22% at 213 million pounds in 2017, they didn't buy the same shares that Foxy did or any of the other equity for punks did. They didn't even buy the same shares that Watt and Dickey held, which are common A. The shares that TSG bought, or a new share class called Prefer C Shares, and they bought them for an average of 13 pounds and 18 pence per share, um, which was a 45%, almost a 45% discount from the shares that BrewDog was selling at the very same time to equity punks, right? So here's the first question, and I spoke with several private equity experts about this, is if TSG thought BrewDog was worth a billion pounds at the time, TSG could have just bought the shares that it, that everyone else was buying for that, you know, amount that would imply such a valuation, right? They didn't, which is why they asked for likely why mean, we don't know TSG declined to comment and no shocker there. I mean, they have no interest in speaking to me about this and I, you know, that's just the nature of the game, but my assumption in a reasonable explanation, if not the certainly true explanation, is that they didn't think that Brewdog was worth a billion pounds at the time, which is fine, except for the fact that Dickey and Watt were out selling new shares based on a billion-dollar or billion-pound valuation. That was bunk. The second piece that's really concerning for anyone now who might be buying in. And for EFP one and two and three and whatever earlier shareholders who have held their investments rather than cash out is that the, the, the preferred part of, uh, of the preferred C shares that TSG bought come with special privileges. One is that they cash out ahead of anyone else, right? They have first priority in any liquidity event, whether that's an IPO or worst case scenario, a bankruptcy. Um, And two and this is the insane part, is they those shares come with an 18% compound annual return. So what that means is that TSG is guaranteed to cash out at 18% growing uh, compound annual growth on its position. That's wild. I mean, that's a lot of interest on an equity position, right? Like, So some of the equity professionals that I spoke with said that looks like a lot more like uh, convertible debt, right? Like it's, it's like a loan. <laughs> it's a thing. It looks a little bit like a loan. Right. And so what we know from this or what we can extrapolate from this, we don't know it for sure because BrewDog refused to answer any of my questions. They wouldn't make an executive available, any executive available for an interview. TSG declined to comment. So what we're doing here is sort of you know, trying to connect the dots on what we do know from their filings. But what we can extrapolate or what is at least a reasonable assumption to make is that A, TSG doesn't think in 2017, doesn't think BrewDog is worth a billion pounds. Uh B, TSG is worried enough about the investment that in addition to the discount, they want a guarantee, right, on, on their position. So like not only do we not think you're worth a billion pounds, but we think you're worth a lot less and we want to be guaranteed a floor that we get our money out no matter what. And that's that eighteen percent return. And C, we know that Dicky and Watt, at least in the statements around, like during the deal or right around when the deal happened, seems to be positioning the valuation in a way that, like, a layperson might not track. Right? Like, as okay, this this means they're worth a billion pounds. That's amazing. And look at all these people who made money. Like, I'm going to make money. And so, like, all of that taken together sounds like not so great. And then, this is the last piece, and I'll shut up and let you guys react to this, that 18% compound annual return continues to grow. So unless BrewDog, and this is simple terms here, but unless BrewDog continues to outpace an 18% growth rate year after year, it is going to start falling behind on its obligation to TSG. And so that's where the earlier shareholders are in danger, is if they can't, outpace that growth rate and they don't ipo it's just going to keep growing and growing and their money the money they owe tsg is going to keep growing uh more rapidly and they're going to have to dilute existing shareholders to make good on it whenever they do uh whenever they do hit a liquidity event
1: yeah it it is mad and like to be fair when when i bought in um an efp2 BrewDog never said you were going to make your money back. This this was like being part of a fan club. It was like owning a little part of the brewery, whatever else. It's only the later ones. And and let's be honest, I I was just lucky TSG invested. I had no idea this was going to happen. But the the thing about the billion, like Ballast Point got sold for a billion and uh, I think got picked up recently for cents on a a, like for something ridiculous knockoff price. Mm -hmm. But... I would argue that Ballast Point were probably less well-known internationally uh, outside the US than BrewDog. But BrewDog have a massive footprint globally, which must count for something, for, for both TSG to go, well, all right, you know if they wanted to buy it, they could just give pony up a billion. Uh, but they went, oh, well, 22%, we'll take that. But if things do go tits up with uh, TSG or whatever, there's bound to be somebody looking at this going, right, this is massive, 100 bars. They own lots of their property as well. So you know they're not saddled with that left, right, and center. They've got a couple of breweries global thing, that must count for something to to keep these investors coming back though.
2: I think it does. Like, you know, and this is where it gets murky, right? And and I should say the caveat here always, and this is true of all the private equity professionals I spoke with, is that like valuing private companies is difficult, right? Like that's why there's an entire global financial industry in trying to figure this shit out and trying, you know, TSG is extremely savvy, right? They're one of the best in the business. So all we can assume out of their actions is that they see a way to make their money. I think one of the things that indicates that they're pretty secure in that belief is that they have an 18% guaranteed return. The question of whether TSG makes their money versus whether equity for punk shareholders make their money is the interesting one, right? Because that's not the same thing at all. TSG doesn't give a shit about the equity punks. Like they they will take all that money and they will rest easy. Uh, at the end of the day, that's their business. And like it or hate it, that's, that's the situation. You bring up Ballast Point. So in 2015, Ballast Point sells for $1 billion, not pounds, but dollars, to Constellation, which uh, in the U.S. distributes Corona and, and uh, uh, whatever. Um, you know, In the U.S., it's tougher sledding for BrewDog now than it was for Constellation in 2015. And if you converted... From pounds to dollars, the enterprise value uh, that BrewDog would need to go public at to keep EFP uh, shareholders whole in 2021, it's over double the valuation of Ballast Point in 2015. Are they twice as valuable? Hard to say, man. But I guess that's the point, because the the market will decide ultimately – if and
0: when they ever float or they they do a initial public offering. Now, we we want to be clear that none of us here are financial professionals, but we are reporting on financial statements that the companies have made. And as you've already described, numerous articles that you've researched and published, you know, places like the Guardian, the Sydney Morning Herald have have published in-depth discussions about the uh, financial valuations of BrewDog. But something that might not be familiar to people is that brew dog is not a single entity as we would understand it that they have a number of different companies and an interesting corporate structure and you describe the valuation for BrewDog australia separately to the valuation for for brew dog and i think the same is true in the u.s is that is that correct am i right saying this is like a hydra or a uh, Cerberus, you know, there's a, there's a multi-headed beast here, but they are separate financial entities.
2: Yeah, it's the, uh, the the three-headed dog from Harry Potter or whatever the fuck. Fluffy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. So, yeah, no, you're ac- you're absolutely right. So, and this is where things get really interesting. And I'm based in the U.S. Uh, and VinePair is predominantly a U.S. publication. So the, the third uh, sort of turn of my investigation was focused specifically on the U.S. subsidiary for... Brewdog. So, Brewdog PLC is the parent company, right? It's the Scottish parent. Then there is Brewdog USA, and there's Brewdog Australia. I think those are the three. They may have other smaller subsidiaries, but those are the the main arms of the company. So, Foxy's shares from EFP two were in the Scottish PLC. That's the company that he bought into. And if you're in the UK now and you're buying shares in Brewdog. You're going to be buying into the PLC as well. If you're in the U.S., as I am, you'd be buying into shares in BrewDog USA, the U.S. subsidiary. And this is, I would say, where things like get even, you know, sort of a little bit dodgier even than they already are, right? Like it's possible that UK punks make money on a very splashy public listing. Like if if BrewDog goes public and for whatever reason, traders are really excited about it. The market puts a premium on it because of its growth, or because they think James Watt looks a little bit like a low rent Tom Hardy, or whatever the case may be. <laughs> uh, you know, like they they may go public for a for a, a serious valuation that's going to keep people like Foxy or others who have bought into the to the PLC um, keep them whole and get TSG their money, and everyone's happy it's hard to see how that works out well for the American shareholders. And the simple reason for that is that there are two separate companies and shares in the U.S. subsidiary have nothing to do with what happens to the PLC. Like you can't just convert your shares from the U.S. company into the PLC because they went public. So when you're Joe Schmo here in the U.S., And, you know, you're at a bar in Indianapolis, Indiana, which is where BrewDog has one of their bars, and you hear, you know, you're like, oh, this this tap room is cool, this company is cool, you go Google a little bit, oh, they're talking about an IPO, like, that's awesome, let me get in, I'm going to get in on this now, and I can buy shares in this company, great, like, I'm going to buy these shares, right? It's not that hard to think of that type of use case where an American consumer who doesn't understand the relationship between the U.S. subsidiary and the Scottish PLC buys into the former thinking they're buying into the latter, and then if the latter IPOs, tries to cash out his shares from the former and is disappointed, right? So like, it's not that hard to imagine that situation happening. And I would point out, as I did in the story, that BrewDog's prospectus to us investors doesn't exactly make it totally clear that that they're separate companies. I mean, certainly in the fine print, the, you know, the, the actual disclosures they do. Um, and I should say that I didn't find any evidence of improper or illegal documentation or, or listings of that nature. Like that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that to someone who's not savvy to reading those and deciphering those documents, the big splashy, sexy prospectus slides that they publish kind of make it seem like they're all one big company right and, and you buy shares and and you're none the wiser maybe. If you evaluate the investment in the US subsidiary on its own merits, assuming that there is no conversion mechanism from the P- from the. US subsidiary shares to the PLC shares, it's it just looks like a bad deal man. I mean the based on the current round, you know they're selling for sixty sixty dollars a share here in the U.S. Based on the current round, the company is valuing itself, the U.S. subsidiary alone at uh, three hundred ninety-one million, and they have forty million-ish dollars worth of debt outstanding to the PLC. So the total enterprise value is like four hundred thirty-two million dollars, but they only did about twenty-seven million dollars worth of revenue last year. If they were to go public today, they'd be trading at or they'd be valued at sixteen times their revenue, which is if you pull comps like it's just not realistic for a brewery to be valued in that way another valuation metric is ev to ebitda and that's like over a thousand typically a company's supposed to be trading at like uh, a a tenth of that
0: yeah like and 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 even less so again you know it's a podcast you know we we don't expect to be people to be sitting there with their pen and their paper yeah sorry (laughs) no 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 we we want the detail i do try to to keep it uh, a little bit balanced for people we will of course provide in the show notes links to your articles links to the vine pair stuff it's absolutely top class reporting you know to be balanced there's nothing improper here what you have is a as a colleague of mine put it to me you have a business behaving in a businessy kind of way. Ultimately, it's caveat emptor. The buyer has to beware. But what the issue I think that people have ultimately with Brewdog is that that is not how they present themselves. To use their own terminology, they're using an anti business business model, but yet they're behaving in the most business like way <laughs>
2: right, possible. Right, yeah, and I think, like, i that's certainly what draws them a ton of fire, right? Like, people people don't like hypocrisy. They certainly don't like it when it's lucrative. And BrewDog has done a very good job of monetizing an image that, upon scrutiny, does not hold up, right? So that's clearly why people, you know, have such a strong reaction to them. I mean, Anheuser-Busch, Heineken... Carlsberg, name any major corporation in the brewing industry or elsewhere, and they're conducting shit that's as sophisticated and, and frankly sometimes like, you know, as dodgy or dodgier, all probably legal, although we know we all know the stories about corporations who get slammed for doing shit that's actually illegal and have to pay huge fines. Like people people have come to mistrust corporations. People, I think, want to trust craft brewers more because they want to believe in sort of an inherent goodness in being uh, smaller and being more quality oriented, et cetera, et cetera. And with brew dog, you know, the company's operation really gives the lie to that assumption. I think in a way that does not feel good to people. I will point out one thing about that. I do want to say like the thing that rises most closely to the level of sort of like impropriety is the company Allows Watt to engage in real estate deals that you know that he does through his like various LLCs. That, barring some sort of explanation that's really impossible to imagine at this point, really just kind of appears to be him enriching himself at, at the at the expense of the shareholders in the company. And so, the magazine Private Eye originally reported on this, I think, in February 2020. And I also included some of their, like some of their reporting and then some of my own advancing that story in the piece. But basically what he does, you know, what he's done um, and what the company has allowed him to do is the company will buy buildings and then sell them to an LLC that Watt owns. And then he will lease them back to the company at some rate, right? And this is not illegal. I think the question that Private Eye raised is the same one that I would raise is like, is that appropriate for a company that's selling shares to rank and file consumers who maybe don't know how to look out for this in the disclosure and furthermore think they're buying into uh an on the level and you know punk uh company and that's that's where i think like to me like i just start rolling my eyes a little bit it's hard for me to look charitably on that without again some explanation that i never received from the company
1: I've got a question about the the general reception towards BrewDog in the U.S., because who is drinking Punk IPA? Who is buying into the BrewDog dream over there when, you know, it is quite a mature craft beer market. We're, we're almost at the other side of it where some of those early guys are now gone because they've grown too big. They've gone bust like Green Flash, Ballast Point, stuff like that have, have overexpanded. Who's super excited for Punk IPA to land in the U.S.? and and is is buying into this
2: man i it's such a good question and i don't fucking know so this is like kind of a joke like so i had a i had a source once who said never bet on like the sophistication of the american consumer right and so this is a person who had worked in the beer business for decades and the point cheekily made was as dumb as you think something is there's gonna be someone who thinks it's really really cool People are looking for shit to belong to, right? Like people want a tribe. People want like to feel like they're on the in crowd of something. And Brewdog is really good at offering them something to belong to, and that's worth a lot of money. So whether they like the beer or not, uh, I mean they they feel like they're they're part of a part of a tribe.
1: Um, Dave, have this has been brilliant. Like like as a as a shareholder as an equity for Punk, uh, your reporting on this as has just been superb. If I was to suggest to my other punk colleagues to to read some of your work and find out more about, about what you do, where can people follow you? Where can people read more of your work?
2: Yeah. So the article that we've been talking about and around uh, on this episode of the podcast, that was published at Vine Pair, where I'm a writer at large covering the beer industry. So that's Vine, V-I-N-E, Pair, P-A-I-R.com. You can find that article there. I've written some other stuff about BrewDog there as well so i publish there pretty regularly but i publish an independent newsletter about drinking culture and beverage industry bullshit um that's called fingers like the things on your hand and that's fingers.substack.com everyone can find me there go check it out subscribe it's free i'll blog about stuff i'll link to new stories that i've published i publish original reporting there from time to time as well um so that's the best way to keep track of me
1: So that was brilliant. Like Dave has done so much research on this. And I'm like from the outset, I am an equity punk. I did buy in early. I bought into the BrewDog dream. I still have the bulk of my shares from that time. I, would I recommend people buy the shares in it? I, I think it really depends on what you want to get out of it. If you want to get a couple of you know, euro off your pints here and there and get your Intergalactic Bar Visa stamped as you go to the different BrewDogs around the place, Absolutely. But if you're doing it to make money back out of it, then there are probably better investment options out there for you.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's that's very fair. I, I know a lot of people are divided on, on BrewDog. You have uh, a huge army of absolutely rabid advocates and you have people who are detractors to the point where you now they seem to have lost all sense of reality and proportionality to, to BrewDog and what they've done. I think you have to look at them really as exactly what they are. They're just A.N. other, multi-billion dollar global conglomerate. And you just have to treat them like that. You know, they are not um, the Messiah. They're just very naughty boys. And actually, well, I don't know if you've seen it, but they've just done
1: their first ever TV commercial. And uh, it's available on YouTube if anybody hasn't seen it. And I, I quite liked it. It was, it was quite clever. It was like there's, you know, beer for everybody and it runs through pretty much the entire population of the globe and how there's a beer for you, whatever you like. And then just at the end there's a little moment where they take a dig at the big green machine from amsterdam and it just ruined it for me it was like there was no need for it the, the ad was going really really well this was nice this was good and then it was just that little dig at the end just felt like it was trying too hard to remind us that they're they're still the bad boys of beer and it
0: just i, I don't think it was necessary well i think trying too hard maybe it sums up uh brew a, a little bit I, I certainly am not going to be investing in them. Uh, I, I I never did. I'm not going to be recommending that anybody invest in them. But I won't, you know, boycott their bars or boycott their, their beers. You know, for me, they still make interesting beers. Uh, but would I choose them over a local craft brewer? Perhaps, perhaps not. Depends on the circumstances. From my perspective, I think BrewDog just need to be treated like anybody else. And don't mind their guff. You know, just make your mind up on on the beer. Exactly. So, Foxy, we're off to our desert island once more. Uh, Who could we have this time, Will? So we have a fabulous guest by the name of Mr. Thomas G. Hurst, or Tom Hurst to his buddies. Thomas G. Hurst sounds like an old-timey pirate mutineer. Wow, business, business mutineer, you might even (laughs) say. So we got to know Tom through our good friend, David Gluckman, actually, from uh, episode five. And he recommended Tom as a guest. And we got in touch with Tom. And we delighted to do so because at exactly the same time, Tom was ripping up the airwaves on BBC's Dragon's Den, a program which is dedicated to raising funds for entrepreneurs starting out with new businesses. And Tom runs Rockstar Spirits. Do you know Rockstar? Uh, I do, having watched Dragon's Den outstanding collection of really unusual spirits uh, spiced rums predominantly overproofed spice rums well, look tom is no stranger
1: to rum rum obviously had a, a massive history going from island to island in the caribbean so i'm really curious to see if tom decides that his rum is the ideal drink to bring to a desert island
0: let's find out
3: can you tell me please what do rock star spirits do uh, Rockstar spirits we at the moment have a range of premium spice rums but hopefully that will expand into other areas of spirits very soon are you allowed to tell us what areas you're going to go into very soon and um, we will launch our first whiskey which is very close to my heart because it's kind of something different again i guess the aim is to bring uh, a scotch so using the provenance of um the amazing provenance of scotch but kind of blending it and delivering it in a, in a way that kind of would appeal to the bourbon consumer. So trying to uh, use the provenance. And also, I guess it's, it's, it's good from a um, practical point of view, keeping the, you know, the, the air miles down so we're not flying stuff all around the world and sourcing product that's local as it possibly could be, but then presenting something we think is going to work with our consumer. So it'll be an overproof product again. <laughs> which some would say is foolish in the world of low and no and um, you know low alcohol sort of thing. Being Diageo only seems to invest in um, no alcohol products at the moment, and so I'm going the other end. I'm putting all the alcohol in.
0: <laughs> so just just for those who mightn't be aware, overproof essentially means significantly stronger in alcohol.
3: Yes, my first product that I launched was Pineapple Grenade, uh, which is sixty five percent. The goal of that was to kind of create an overproof rum. Traditionally, the overproof rum category, you know, it's a, it's got a long history, but it tends to be dark rums. It You know, they tend to be quite challenging. If, you know, if you're trying to bring in, a, you know, someone who's into flavoured gin, for example, into the rum category and gave them a dark navy rum at, you know, 57%, it, it might not draw them into the category. Uh, it might be a bit challenging kind of thing. So the goal was to try and use these really nice high quality ingredients, really nice sipping rum as the base, uh, but still at this high strength, but make them really accessible and sort of you know, easy easy to um, lure people into the category of rum for the first time, hopefully.
0: So with something like Pineapple Grenade, I presume you're, you're no stranger to the concept of uh, sitting on a desert island. But if you were on a desert island and you could only bring one drink with you, what yes. would you bring and why, please?
3: It's relatively straightforward, I think. This one for me, uh, obviously, I don't want to choose one of my own products; so that would be a bit too uh, egocentric. But more, one of my favourite products that I ever worked with uh, in my career was Louis Trey. Wow! So, so we're going, we're going right to the top end. So we're bringing, bringing full luxury to the uh, to the desert island. So, yeah, you know, it might be a bit of a dull, uh, boring day, and you've collected your drinking water and killed you, um, you know. Your, your possible whatever to eat for your tea.
0: <laughs> so that's Louis Louis Tres the um, yeah. brandy,
3: isn't it? Yes, yeah, so Louis Tres is the kind of um, the flagship brand of Remy uh, Martin cognacs. And I used to well, I, w- I was at William Grant's for around uh, right about seven years, and one of the various sort of mergers and takeovers was was when Remy Cointreau. Came into the grants portfolio in the UK and I became a big fan of it. And I worked out that the margin on Louis Trey was the equivalent of two pallets of Quantro. And so <laughs> I was like, there's got to be a way <laughs> to sell this stuff. And I was looking after the, the sort of London at the time. So it was probably my favorite memory of selling any products because we set up uh, a monthly Louis Trey luncheon which was as amazing as it sounds. So we'd invite various high net worth people and people from, you know, relevant swanky restaurants and wholesalers and stuff that specialised in, in that kind of thing. And we'd have a luncheon uh, in Mayfair somewhere and we'd match a food course with a different rain, a different product uh, from the Rembrandt Amport portfolio and then finish with a tasting of Louis Trey. So it was a really tough gig. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, i've got very very happy memories of that year it's the best way to sell things isn't it just provide an amazing experience the product sells itself and uh, i think we actually sold the most louis that you know ever in, in a year and it was just yeah really some phenomenal memories and uh when beyonce came to perform at glastonbury we uh sold three bottles of the really swanky bottles to um to their hotel in london uh, which they drank over the weekend so that was a particularly good day
1: so you'd have happy memories of that as you were toasting your uh, to yourself on your desert island
3: absolutely yeah what could be what could be better you, you wouldn't want to get uplifted if they managed to find you out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm staying here with my louis drive
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow i wasn't expecting that I'm so surprised. I genuinely thought he was going to go rum. Yeah. Well, the other thing that surprised me is that when I was listening back to it, I found that I was changing my pronunciation of Louis Trez. I started out thinking, oh, it's Louis Trez, the uh, Remy Martin super premium uh, cognac. And then I all of a sudden discovered, you know, by listening to Tom, oh, it must be Louis Trey. I, I would have assumed it was Louis Trez. You know, if you're going to name yourself after a former French king it should probably be pronounced in french no yeah well, I, I didn't do all that french in school for for nothing i was sure it was trez but you know the man sold a lot of uh, louis Trez, so you know he, he he can't be wrong surely well maybe it's what just what the cool kids call it you know trez
1: is too long so just drop the, the z <laughs> at the end of it
0: <laughs> well we're gonna hear a lot more from tom in our next episode because Tom is our main interview guest talking about his time on the Dragon's Den TV program and actually what it takes to create the perfect pitch. Thank you for listening to the Business of Beverages. It's been our pleasure to bring you this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and recommend us to one other friend or colleague. As ever, we are independently produced and self-funded, so we appreciate your support in listening, sharing or reviewing this podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, where we go by at BizBevPod. If you'd like to support us further, you can find us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash BizBevPod.
2: Well, Will is looking at the camera dubiously.
0: (laughs) I I, I would like to present the case for the the prosecution here. (laughs) Yeah, approach approach the bench. Yeah. (laughs)